You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to Exodus chapter 20. Since we finished our last series through the book of Judges, thought we'd stay on a real cheery note and go over to the Ten Commandments because everyone gets really excited about those. But I will be starting a new series, working through the Ten Commandments, which I actually do find a very cheery subject, and I hope that after this series we will all find great hope as we continue to hear God's good commands. But before we hear this short word from Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, let us call upon our God and ask him for his help. Father, we pray without ceasing because we know that we need you in everything we do. Even when we are just listening to your word, we need you to open our ears. We cannot listen apart from your power. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak again this evening. Though we may be tired after another full day of worship and rest, pray that you would awaken us again. Though we may already be thinking about tomorrow and the week ahead, I pray that you would again draw our minds and hearts to our beloved Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Draw near to us now, we ask, in the name of your Son. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. This is just as the Lord has gathered uh, his people Israel at Mount Sinai after freeing them from slavery in Egypt. We read in verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, verse 97. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. This is not how many people, even many Christians, speak about God's law today. Here is how some prominent pastors are preaching on God's law today. The Ten Commandments have no authority over you. None. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. Here is another very well-known preacher as he explains the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he explains it this way. 
God broke the law for love. Love for God's law is running low. I'm not sure many would agree with Paul's assessment that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Instead, many view God's law as an unholy barrier to love. Clearly, it would have to be if, if God needed to break the law in order to love his people. Some automatically associate the law with legalism, as if legalism is just loving God's law too much. So instead of the law as holy, righteous, and good, it is perceived as the thief of freedom, the roadblock to love, and the enemy of the gospel. Few are singing from their hearts, oh, how I love your law. Why, why is this? I think one culprit is ignorance. We, we don't know what God's law says. A survey just a few years back revealed that only 14% of Americans know the Ten Commandments. I'm not sure a survey of churches would yield much better results. I won't quiz us this evening to see if we all know them. But perhaps a bigger culprit is confusion. I think many of us simply don't understand what the law is and how we are actually supposed to think about and apply it to our lives today. And admittedly, the role of the law can be confusing. Understanding how the law functioned under the old covenant, how it functions now under the new covenant can be challenging. That's why a couple of years back when we spent time in our evening service working through covenant theology, spent three sermons just on how do we understand and apply the law in the, the old covenant context and in the new covenant context. Now, I'm not going to rehearse all of that. So if you can't get enough of my preaching, those sermons are online. You can go back, listen to them. But I'm going to be building on that foundation in this series. Because in this series, I'm going to particularly give attention to how we understand and apply the Ten Commandments, which, contrary to some thought, I believe are still absolutely binding on our lives. Thou shalt still obey the Ten Commandments. But more than that, I believe we should love God's commandments because they show us God's character. See, if we love the lawgiver, we will love his law. For God's law is the manual for, for freedom. It's not its thief. It is a road map for love, not a road block. And it is the gospel's loving companion, not its enemy. 
So this evening, I'm just going to try to lay the proper foundation for understanding and applying the Ten Commandments. And in the rest of the series, we'll just take each commandment one at a time. I'm going to explain what the Ten Commandments are and then give three reasons why I believe we should still obey them. The Ten Commandments are first articulated here in Exodus 20. You also find them in Deuteronomy 5. But this is when they're first articulated in this form, when God assembled Israel before Mount Sinai after delivering them from slavery in Egypt. However, they are not introduced as commandments. They're actually called God's words. And God spoke all these words. Now, these are certainly commandments, but they are more than mere rules. Law can refer to different things in the Bible. When you come across that word, it doesn't always refer to the exact same thing. Sometimes, as we heard in the two Psalms I quoted for you, law refers to the entirety of God's word. Sometimes the biblical authors use law to refer to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes it's more narrowly referring to the Mosaic Covenant. Sometimes it's just referring to different aspects of that covenant. Like in Hebrews, when it kept referring to the ceremonial aspects of the law, the sacrifices, the purifications. Sometimes it refers to the civil structures for Israel as they were constituted in the Old Testament. But the law is not fundamentally civil or ceremonial. It is moral. It is an absolute standard of right and wrong. The Ten Commandments are the succinct summary and foundation of this moral standard that has been woven into the fabric of the universe from the very beginning. So even though I say this is where the Ten Commandments are first articulated, this is not when God's law came to be in the world. It was there from the moment God created the world. It was all embedded in that command to Adam and Eve, you don't eat from this tree. So the Ten Commandments are the heart of morality. They're somewhat like the U.S. Constitution. The, the U.S. Constitution is legally binding, but in a basic, general, foundational way. It establishes the moral principles by which we are governed. And then all our other U.S. laws are regulatory. They follow, they work out the principles established in the Constitution. So in this way, the Ten Commandments lay down the, the foundational principles of right and wrong. And then all of the other laws that you find in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are applying. They are working out the Ten Commandments in Israel's everyday life. So you can think of the law as having three levels of specificity. The highest level 
consists of the two great commandments, which Jesus articulated in Matthew 22. And say, what, what is God's law? It's to love God. It's to love your neighbor. Jesus said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So nothing is ever moving beyond those two commands to love God and love neighbor. Everything depends on or hangs upon those two great commands. But of course, we would ask, well, what does it mean? What does it look like to love God and to love our neighbor? Well, the Ten Commandments answer that question. This is the second level of specificity. The first four commandments hang on loving God. This is what it means to love God. The last six hang on loving our neighbor. And then the other 601 commands you find in the Mosaic law depend upon these 10, applying them to various circumstances. And you need to know that ancient laws were, were never exhaustive. You, you read through U.S. law, they, they try to spell out every possible scenario you might encounter. But ancient laws weren't that way. So they might give you one or two uh, examples. Don't steal. So if your neighbor has a sheep, don't take it. And you couldn't come before the judge and say, well, I stole a goat. It, this just said sheep. Well, no, everyone understood. This is an example that then helps you know how to apply this in other circumstances. The Ten Commandments, therefore, teach us what it means to love God and to love others like God. We must understand, then, that the law is not the opposite of love. It is not a roadblock to love. The law is the sphere of love. To set aside the law is to set aside love. You cannot love someone outside of the law. And so we must never think that the gospel is opposed to the law, as if the gospel is God's lo love overcoming God's law. In the gospel, God upholds his law. He does not break it. So to say that God broke the law would be to say, God stopped being love. But the law is not a standard of love that, that God and everyone else has to meet. As if here's this moral standard, God says, we all have to meet this. Because there is no moral standard above or outside of God. You see, the law is God as love laid out to us. In other words, the law is first and foremost the revelation of God's heart, of God's character. It reflects who God is. It reveals his character, not just his ways. 
because everything God does depends on who he is. He cannot act other than he is. So in summary, the law at its heart is the revelation of God's heart. It shows you what the lawgiver is like. And so we then learn through the law to live and look like him. So when we study the Ten Commandments, we are not studying abstract theology. We are studying the very character of God. And that the Ten Commandments reveal God's character is clear in how he gave them. Because the giving of the Ten Commandments is accompanied by many visual and audible signs of God's very presence. There's smoke and fire, the mountain trembles, people hear a loud sound like a trumpet blast, and all of this was indicating to them God himself has appeared. And in addition, when God speaks the Ten Commandments, this is the one and only time he speaks directly to the people of Israel. Everything else comes through Moses. But with the Ten Commandments, this is God speaking face to face with Israel. So clearly they are central. And lastly, the Ten Commandments were written directly by God on stone tablets. No other laws were written that way. And they were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And all of this demonstrates that the Ten Commandments were given as perpetual commands to be preserved forever. The Ten Commandments are God's eternal standard, which reflect God's eternal character. So why should we obey them? Well, this introduction in chapter 20 gives us three reasons. The first should already be apparent to you. We obey the Ten Commandments because of who God is. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God. He doesn't begin with the commands. He begins with himself. See, the first thing the Israelites needed to understand was not what they should do. They need to un needed to understand who God is. Because what they were to do depended on who this God is that they were freed to serve. And the same is true for us. So who is God? He says, I am the Lord. When you see LORD in all capital letters in your English Bible, as I've mentioned before, that is translating God's covenant name, Yahweh. The name that God gave to Moses in the burning bush when Moses asked, who do I tell them is sending me? He says, you tell them I am is sending you. Yahweh means I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. It expresses God's total sovereignty, self-existence, and self-sufficiency. He doesn't need anybody else. Nobody else directs him. Nobody else defines him. You say, well, God, who are you? I, I am. 
I'm not like anything else. I just am who I am. He is the eternal creator, sustainer, definer, and director of everything. And so in that name, we see that his very nature demands our obedience. Who he is, is always worthy of worshipful obedience. And who he is never changes. His name reflects his eternity. And so if God is eternal, his character is eternal. Then if his character is eternal, the law that reveals his character is eternal. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You notice Jesus says, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I didn't come to relax the law. And he says the law is still going to be taught and commanded in the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is not a lawless kingdom. And so when we ask, should we still obey the Ten Commandments today? We should also be asking ourselves, has God changed? Because if God has not changed, then the Ten Commandments still reflect His character, and we are still bound to obey them. Now, Christ's fulfillment of the law changes in ways what obedience looks like. So we've learned in other series, we don't obey all the ceremonies anymore. Some of the civil structures have changed because God's people are not a nation state. But fulfillment is not abolition, nor is Christ fulfilling the law, relaxing the law. God spoke the Ten Commandments, and in them God is still speaking to us. He is telling us who He is. And so how we respond to those commandments is essentially our reply to God. Our obedience or disobedience is saying something back to the God who has spoken to us. So when we obey, we are saying, God, I believe you that you are who you say you are. When we disobey, we call God a liar and we say, you are not the Lord. You are not Yahweh. But he doesn't just say, I am the Lord. He says, I am the Lord, your God, your God. God's moral law is binding upon the whole world. For as I said, his moral law was, was contained in God's covenant command to Adam and Eve in the garden. So everyone is covenanted to God in the covenant of works. But here in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments are spoken to Israel within the covenant of grace. And therefore, there is a unique way in which they reflect God to his chosen people. 
In other words, God is not just declaring here to Israel, I am God. I am the God of the whole world. He is declaring, I am your God. I am uniquely the God who is for you. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God delivered Israel to be his people in a way no other people were his people. To belong to him in a way that no other nation belonged to him. He delivered them to make them his children, not just his servants. So if you read back in chapter 19, beginning in verse 4, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So as Christians, we should especially obey the Ten Commandments because in them, God reveals himself to us, not only as our holy God, but as our holy Father. We have the privilege of belonging to God in a way no one else does. He loves us, treasures us, and works for us in a way he doesn't love, treasure, and work for the rest of the world. So yes, God demands our obedience, but he also deserves our obedience. We should obey him because it is our duty. We should even more so obey him because it is our delight. The Ten Commandments really are establishing a family, a relationship of love. His commands and our response are, are really a dialogue of love. He speaks his love to us in his commandments. We speak our love back to him in our obedience. He shows love to us. We show love back to him. So when you hear God's commandments, he is saying to you, I love you. And when we obey, we are saying back to God, I love you too. We ought to sing, oh, how I love your law. Because when we sing that, what we are really singing is, oh, how I love the lawgiver. So we obey because of who God is. Number two, we obey because of what God has done. God is our creator. He is also our deliverer. He's our authority. He's also our redeemer. As I've already read, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. As I read back in Exodus 19, he said, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So there are two sides to this. God says, You saw what I did to Egypt and you saw what I did to you. They saw God's judgment 
They saw God's salvation. This was to warn them against disobedience on one hand and to draw them into obedience on the other. Because the law shows forth God's law, but it also shows the penalty for rejecting this loving God. For this loving God is nonetheless not a God to be trifled with. He is, his love is not a take-it-or-leave-it kind of love. So Israel saw the ten plagues that came upon Egypt and from which they were spared. When they came to the Red Sea, they saw how God brought them safely through the waters and how he drowned the Egyptians in that same water. So there is a fear and awe dynamic to obedience. The law tells us God is not a God to be taken lightly. He is holy. He is righteous. He is faithful. He is patient. He is loving. He is merciful. But he is also just and he will judge. So God's works warn us and guard us from disobedience. But his works also draw us into the safety and pleasure of obedience. Now, I'm going to show you a really profound insight. I had to go to seminary. I had to spend a lot of money to be able to see these kinds of things in the Bible. But I'm going to, I'm going to show this to you. If you look in your Bible, you, you probably never noticed this before. But Exodus 19 comes before Exodus 20. I know, it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. Now, I'm kidding that that's mind-blowing, but I'm not kidding that that is absolutely significant. Why? Because in Exodus chapter 19, God has already brought Israel safely out of Egypt. He has already gathered them to his, mo his mountain. He has already drawn them to his, himself, and he has already said to them, you are my treasured possession. They've already been freed. They've already been redeemed. They've already become God's children. Then comes Exodus chapter 20, where he gives the law. You see, grace always precedes law. In one sense, you might say that God's grace brings you to God's law. Not the other way around. God's law, therefore, is not the enemy of God's grace. In one sense, it is the goal of God's grace. By that, I mean that the law is not what frees you from sin. But the law is what teaches you how to live like one who has been freed. The law does not save you. But the law teaches you how to rejoice as one who has been saved. God's grace brings you into God's loving embrace. And then God's law tells you how to live in the warmth of that embrace for the rest of your life. In other words, obedience does not earn salvation. But salvation always produces obedience. God's law does not tell you how to merit 
God's grace. It tells you how to live in God's grace. Israel was enslaved and needed to be set free, but it was not from the law. The law is not slavery. Sin is slavery. So God's laws are then the guidelines of grace. They are the manual for freedom. The Ten Commandments are like guardrails that keep you driving safely on the road. They are not prison guards keeping you locked in the misery of a cell. So we needed to be freed from the curse of the law, but that was because of our disobedience. The problem wasn't the law, as if the law was bad. So the New Testament letters do sound negative about the law at times, but it is because the biblical authors had to keep correcting Christians who were misunderstanding and misusing the law. They kept trying to make it the key to their salvation, and the authors had to keep saying, no, no, you you are saved by Christ. That, that's not what the law is for. So it is bad when you use the law as the way to salvation, as merit for God's law, because that's not why God gave you the law. The law was given to expose sin, to restrain sin, and to show you your Savior. To show you, you need a Savior. Savior's not me, the law. It's the one whom God will send. But the law also then tells us what God looks like so that we can look like him. So never twist the law to make salvation the reward for your obedience. Always remember Exodus 19 comes before Exodus 20. Remember that salvation is the reason for your obedience, not the reward for your obedience. God saves you, then you obey. First, you learn what God has done for you, then you learn what you do for God. You love God because God first loved you in Christ. The law is not your life. The law is how you live because of Christ, who is your life. Third and finally, we obey not only because of who God is and what he has done, we obey because of who we are. I've already said this in various ways, so I just want to say it again explicitly so you don't miss it. We obey the law because of who God has made us by grace in Christ. Who God is and what he has done has changed who we are now. God's grace has recreated us. God's grace has reclaimed us. God's grace has restored us. And so now God's grace commands us. And again, Exodus 19 is helpful. God delivered Israel to be his treasured possession, to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation. And the same language is used of us as Christians in 1 Peter 2. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Obedience is not legalism. Obedience is proclaiming the excellencies of the one who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So freedom means we are now able to live according to God's given purpose and design. Salvation means, as I said this morning, we can now be who we were always supposed to be. Which means we now live in a way that is fundamentally different than the way that the world lives. God's grace has set us apart for God. So again, you might just think of holy people, which is what God has made us in Christ. Live holy lives. Grace restores our nature. And we were made in God's image and likeness. Sin marred that image. Grace renews it. So we get to look like our father again. This is why God's holiness demands our holiness. I love how one commentator puts it. He says, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. In other words, you must be what you must be because I am what I am. He says, the law of God reflects the character of God. It is the likeness of God expressed in precepts. And the obedience to the law of the Lord triggers in us the image of God, which is our real nature. In other words, we live the truly human life when we obey the Lord's law. So when God saves us, we're no longer the same, which means we no longer live the same. We live by the power of God's grace in accordance with God's law, for the law shows us the image of God. Christian obedience, therefore, shows the world what it really means to be human. This is actually a great gift to our world, which is so confused, so broken, and so searching for what it means to be human. And when we worship and obey the Lord, we are graciously showing them this is what we're supposed to look like. Because we're showing them this is what God looks like. The law is the complexion of recreation. So when we obey, it's like we're, we're putting on the garments of grace. The Ten Commandments teach us how to live like Christ in light of who Christ has recreated us to be. So do we still obey the Ten Commandments in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes. A thousand times yes. For Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's eternal, unchangeable nature. So, of course, Jesus didn't come to break the law or change the law. He came to fulfill it and thereby bring us into the full beauty of holiness. In Christ, 
God's grace brings us to God's law because God's law teaches us how to live forever in the grace of Jesus Christ. So the Ten Commandments will still show us our sin. They will still restrain our sin. They will still point us to the Savior. I hope all of those things happen as we work through each of these commandments. We still need forgiveness, and the law is still showing us that. But the law was also designed to teach us how to live as God's chosen, treasured, delivered people. These are not instructions for how to get free, but for how to live as one freed. They are not the path to earn God's love. They are the path of the already loved. Jesus saved us from the curse of the law so that we might now live forever in the blessing of the law as he fulfilled it. So we don't have to study the Ten Commandments in fear and dread. We can study the Ten Commandments with the eager expectation of blessing. Because we live under grace, not under the law. God's grace has removed us from being under the condemnation of the law. So now the law, in one sense, just walks beside us as our loving friend and guide, as our protector. So as our hearts see God's heart in his law, I pray we will all sing with the psalmist. Oh, how I love your law. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you first and foremost that we do not have to come to the law with fear and trembling, thinking, I, I can never do this and I will be condemned. I thank you that the law brings us to Christ, who then brings us back to the law. I thank you that Christ has fulfilled every, every precept, every command, down to the smallest detail, so that as we learn your law, we do not gain our righteousness from it, but we rejoice in our righteousness that is in Christ. And I pray, though, that we would learn from the law, that we would learn who you are, that we would love what we see of your heart and character, and that you, by your grace, would keep conforming us to that very heart and character. May we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, knowing that that means we will grow in obedience to your beautiful law. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.